So Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, we've been working through the book of Isaiah, uh, chapters 40, 40 through 66. Now, just as a reminder to bring everybody up to speed, what Isaiah is doing in the first 35 or so chapters of the book of Isaiah, he's been telling the nation of Israel, or the nation of Judah, do not trust in foreign powers, and do not fear the major foreign power at the time, Assyria. Don't be afraid of them. Assyria was the big bad bully on the block, and at the time they had um, one of the most fearsome military leaders that's ever been a military leader. His name was Tiglath-Pileser III, if you want to know. You can read all about his exploits. He was a vicious and ruthless man. He, under any circumstances, would have been a man that you should be afraid of. And God kept coming to his people and saying, don't be afraid of them. Hezekiah was the king at the time, and Hezekiah stood up to Tiglath-Pileser. He stood up to Assyria. And for all the world, it looked like it wasn't going to pan out. But God intervened and rescued them. Even though God had delivered the nation from this terrible trouble, the people, though externally they had turned from their wicked ways, internally they had not. There was a lot of private, secret rebellion going on. In fact, there was a lot of stuff being done behind closed doors, behind even the closed doors of the priestly temple area, where people were giving themselves over to the worship of foreign gods. And God said, because you have turned your hearts against me, I don't care that your externals are in line with me. I don't care that you sacrifice to me. In fact, your new moon offerings, your, your, your sacrifices, your Sabbaths, your fastings, I hate them. God uses that strong a language. I hate them. They revile me because your hearts are far from me. Now, that should be a lesson to any of us that think a simple religious activity endears us to God. It doesn't. God is after the heart. And so God says, because you haven't turned your hearts to me, because you haven't turned your hearts to me, I am eventually going to punish you. It's going to be 100 years from now when God is talking to them. They don't know that yet. It's going to be 100 years from now. And the people that punish them are going to be the nation of Babylon. God is telling them, I'm going to use Babylon to punish you for this idolatry for failing to turn your hearts to me. And when I do, when I bring this judgment upon you, I want you to be comforted because I'm not going to let it be too much. I'm going to be with you. If you simply follow my voice, you will prosper. You'll have your lives. You'll go somewhere else. 
Yes, you'll have to leave the land, but you'll live and you'll prosper where you go. And I'm going to bring you back. Okay? So God is mixing in predictions of judgment with the promise of grace and mercy and sustaining power in the middle of that judgment. Okay? Does all that make sense so far? Okay, do we have any questions about what we've covered to this point? Isaiah 42. Yep. So let's pick up our reading in Isaiah 42, and let's pick up our reading in verse 14 of chapter 42, and we're going to read down through the first few verses of 43. Now, the most important thing is that when we read these verses, you keep the structure in mind that I just told you. God's people are at peace. Judah is stable, but they're hypocrites. They're relying on their religious ceremonies and in secret are doing acts of idolatry. God is upset about that. So let's keep that in mind as we read this. Okay, Verse 14 and 42. For a long time I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light from the rough places into level ground. By the way, I've heard, like I've seen on greeting cards, people quote this verse as a comfort, like, I will turn darkness before them to light and level ground and so forth. And they don't realize that this is a prediction of judgment. <laughs> and they're sending this as a greeting card, as a prediction of uh, comfort. And I'm like, you should probably read your Bible <laughs> a little bit more, <laughs> having said that. I digress. That was for free. So if you get a greeting card, you might want to look up the whole chapter just in case. Okay? These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now he's referring to Israel here as his servant. Who is blind but my servant? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? And he's, he's asking a rhetorical question. Is there anybody more blind than you are? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Let's stop right there. Where does this belong historically in the little structure I just gave you? 
I just gave you guys a little historical structure, both what's happening and what God will do. Where does this fit in? Yes, this is the coming judgment. And, and when he's talking about the servants being blind and deaf, he's talking about them right now, correct? You're blind and deaf right now, and therefore I'm going to judge you. Why do you think he's putting that in many of them in the past tense? I judged you, but judgment hasn't come yet. Why is he putting that in the past tense? He already knows that's a good way to put it. There's a little better way. Yes, that's exactly right. It's as good as done. Okay, and God is trying to communicate his, this is an ancient uh, Hebrew way of communicating that you're resolved to do something. How many of you um, have not put the check in the mail, but when somebody asks you, you say, the check is in the mail? The check's still in your checkbook, isn't it? Unaddressed, unfilled out. So why do you say the check's in the mail? Because as soon as you hang up the phone, I say hang up the phone, nobody hangs up the phone like this anymore. As soon as you hang up the phone, you're going to pull out your checkbook and write your check and put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it off in the mail, right? You're committed, you're resolved, it's done. It's as good as done. That's what God is saying. This is as good as done. Okay, now, verse, chapter 43, verse 1. So, now that's, that's sobering to hear, isn't it? God is resolved to judge us for our hypocrisy. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, these judgmental things that I'm going to bring on you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. The literal Hebrew rendering of it, I don't think we'll have time to get to that today, but I'll say it now. Um, the, the word precious in my eyes, it literally means, um, it's the idea of protectiveness of your eyes. Um, how many of you have, have, have had something hit you in the eye and you just you cover up your eye like that and it's, it's a very tender thing, that, that area. Um, you put on safety goggles to protect your eye because anything that's up in your face and in your eyes is, is um, particularly stressing. And this literally means you are the, the apple, the inside of my eye that's so... That, that's so um, tender to me, not in the sense of tender-hearted and warm, but a sensitive spot for me that I'm going to protect. 
Okay, You are that for me. I'm not going to let anything hurt that part of my body. I'm not going to let anything hurt you. I will protect you as much as I would protect the internal parts of my eyes. Okay? Because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life, fear not, for I am with you. All right, let's, let's go through this passage. And I think at the end, you'll see something really cool. Okay? I think at the end you'll see something really, really cool. Let's go back to chapter 42 where we picked up our reading in verse 14. I want us to notice, first of all, God's patient restraint. Okay? By the way, there are four sections that we just read. There's God's commitment to punish. There's a plea for his people to hear this commitment. And there's a promise of gracious discipline. And what we won't get to today, a promise of miraculous return. Okay? But let's cover first this commitment to punishment. And as God has been committed to punish, he first expresses his patient restraint. Look right here at verse 14 of chapter 42. There's three Hebrew verbs that are very important. You might want to circle them all. For a long time, I have held my peace. That's number one. I have kept silent, number two. I have restrained myself, number three. Sometimes our English Bibles, in an effort to smooth things out, lose the punch. These are three separate words, and we've, I've told you in here before that Hebrew doesn't have verb tenses. Hebrew has what we call themes, and this is a way of coloring the meaning of a verb. The themes that these verbs come in is a, is a sense that we, would, that we would say is causative, okay? And what it's, when, when a, a Hebrew verb is used in this particular theme, it, it, it means that it's intensified, okay? In English, we will usually just think of a verb that is more intense, Okay, so somebody give me uh, a more intense version of this verb. Um, I hit the ball. Somebody give me a more intense version of that verb. I smashed the ball. I crushed the ball. All right, that's enough. You get the point. You could also say, I really hit the ball, right? Now, that's not quite as good, but it intensifies it, doesn't it? In Hebrew, they do this. They put it in this causative theme. And so if you wanted to put a really in front of it, you could. So what God's saying here is, for a long time, I have really held my peace. (laughs) I've had to hold it back. I've had to force myself to stay silent. I'm infuriated over your hypocrisy over your idol worship. And I, like, I, I, have, I have taken great pains to restrain myself. I have kept still. How many of you have heard, say, like a family member talking who's wronged you, and they're continuing to tell you those lies, and you just want to come out of your chair and confront them. And you have to physically restrain yourself 
from overwhelming them with a barrage of truth. How many of you have ever felt that before? Yes. That's what God is communicating. He says, I have restrained myself. It is now, though, now it's different. <laughs> I cry out like a woman in labor. I gasp and pant. Now, let me give a couple of full disclosures here. Number one, I never have been in labor, okay? <laughs> um, nor have I had a wife who's been in labor. My, we have five children, but my wife has had to have, um, my wife has had to have planned cesareans. Um, our first was an emergency cesarean, and our next four had to be planned. So we, I don't know what this is like, uh, either from experience or from observation. Now, those of you ladies who have gone through this, I would venture to say most of you have had pain blockers, epidurals, some way in which that the pain of this was lessened. Those things did not exist in the ancient world. Um, and so this is full... Uh, throttle pain and agony and shouting, extreme gasping and panting. God says, I've held myself back, but not anymore. Not anymore. Now think, just think for a moment about the language that God is using. In any other normal circumstance, how would that strike us? If you were to happen into your office, uh, your boss's office, and he were to sit you down, and he said, for a long time, I've held myself back, and you can see the agitation in his hands. He stands up, he's quaking, he's shaking, and then he raises his voice to a shout, not anymore! You'd be like, boss, what'd I do? <laughs> he may not even be mad at you, you just know, like, something has happened, right? This is what God is doing. This is what he's trying to raise the rhetoric to his people so they understand just how impassioned he feels. And just see, this is perfect, sinless holiness and love. God is not, um, God's not coming across, um, God is not unreasonably angry. Okay? This isn't a fit. This is just and holy and right. He says, and I'm, I'm determined, I'm determined, I'm going to, punish. And the point here is that God's wrath is going to come like a sudden flood. It's sudden, yet it's foreseen. Okay, it's sudden, yet it's foreseen. Now, we have an excellent illustration of this that's actually in keeping with what God just used. Our beloved Anna Baker is, ex is expecting, and she's very far along in her pregnancy. Your due date is in less than a month, right? Okay, now, you guys have seen this coming for a while, correct? Eight months now, in fact, okay? Now, things are going to get bigger and more intense, yet when you tell Joe, honey, it's time, that's going to surprise Joe, isn't it? Yes, it will. <laughs> He'll go, oh, crud, it's time! <laughs> We'd be like, Joe, what's up? Like, you saw this coming for eight months, yet it still was, it was sudden. It was sudden. And that's what God is saying. Like, I've been trying to tell you all along, this is foreseen. 
But when it comes, it's going to come suddenly on you. You're going to be surprised by it, even though you shouldn't have been. Okay. Now, let me illustrate what he means by that. God says that, listen, there's a, there's a phrase in here that's really important to see. Um, he says in here, um, verse 21 of chapter 42, look at that. He said, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. If you like to write in your Bibles, you definitely need to write down two cross-references right here. Deuteronomy 30.19 and Deuteronomy 31.26. Deuteronomy 30.19 and Deuteronomy 31.26. Both Deuteronomy 30.19 and 31.26. And there, what God is saying is, if you give yourselves over to idols, I'm going to judge you. There's going to be curses that are going to come on you. And here's what God is saying. It's, it's, it's not a matter anymore of grace or mercy. It's a matter of will I be a God who keeps my word? Okay? Think of it this way. The parent who says, Johnny, come over here. And Johnny doesn't come over here. And the parent says, don't make me count to five. One, two, three, four, five. And where's Johnny? Still over there. I said five. Don't make me count to five again. One, two, three, four, five. Johnny knows he's got to like 175, right? And at some point, you, you just have to tell the parent, look, the kid has sized you up. You are a person of empty threats. And God is saying right here, I'm not a God of empty threats. I've warned you in my law, specifically Deuteronomy 30.19 and Deuteronomy 31.26. The grace is up. The curses are coming. You've backed me into a corner now to where I have no choice but to keep my word. And I will keep my word. I will make it glorious. Okay? I noted here that God gave them abundant warnings. <laughs> Listen to the number of prophets that came to this people before judgment. Okay? These are just the named prophets, by the way. These are the named prophets that went to Israel and told them to stop doing what they're doing. Here they are. Ahijah, Jehu, Elijah, Micaiah, Elisha, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micaiah, Isaiah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. That's a big chunk of your Old Testament, isn't it? And that's not to mention all the unnamed prophets, that's not to mention the schools of prophets that uh, Zechariah had, that Elisha had, that Elijah had. Samuel had a school of prophets. These are all people that came warning Israel to stop what they were doing. All named prophets. There was never more than a decade stretch of time when God wasn't actively giving people his warnings. And they ignored them all. Now, God promises that when he does decide to judge, he will come with drought and deportation. That's what he's symbolizing here when he says, I will lay waste to the mountains and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. These are two dreaded consequences in the ancient world, drought and deportation. He says, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths they have not known. These are 
roads they've never gone on before. And I'm going to send them away. Now, why is God so upset? Why is God so upset? He's upset because of idolatry. He says it right here. He says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame. Verse 17, who? Who are turned back and put to shame? Those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now, here again is a place where in your Bibles, you might want to be writing things down. Because we're in a culture right now that's actually uniquely equipped to understand this. We call it perspectivalism, okay? But all you really needed to do was see how a husband and wife communicate to each other over the years, okay? I think this has gone back and forth both ways. How many of you wives have sat down with your husbands and you said, honey, I've told you this 27,482 times in the years we've been married. And every time I tell you, it's like you're hearing it for the first time. And the husband goes, I had no clue it meant this much to you. <laughs> and you say, well, it does. Vice versa, the husband says to the wife, honey, I've, I've, I, you know, I'm trying to convey to you in some way how important this is to me. And it just, you know, for whatever reason, hasn't totally gotten communicated. I mean, maybe, I know none of your marriages would ever have conversations like that, but some, some do, okay? And God is saying right here, listen, you need to understand how awful this sin is to me. Listen to God's perspective on how awful idolatry is. You want to write down Jeremiah 3 or Ezekiel 16. Here, here, idolatry is compared to a young woman who plays the whore. A young woman who goes into prostitution. In fact, you might want to write down Ezekiel 23. This is a woman who stops receiving payment for her services as a prostitute, but starts paying for male prostitutes. Okay? God says, that's what idolatry is to me. It's that level of brokenness and unfaithfulness. It's that level of extremity of behavior. Okay? A woman who enters prostitution in her youth and abandons making money and starts giving money. Okay. God says, this is what idolatry is to me. And for it, you will be judged. Now, I want you guys to see something encouraging before we go to worship, okay? God says, I'm going to judge you. You're not going to hear. You're not going to hear the cause and effect. You're not going to hear the natural consequences. He says, he pleads with them. In verses 18 through 25, he pleads with them. He says, he says look, don't do this. Don't, don't make me judge you. Return to me. And he, he tries to reason with them on this sort of cause and effect kind of way. But they're blind. They're deaf. They don't hear. They see, but they don't observe. I'm, I'm reminded there was a song um, by Paul, uh, uh, yeah, Paul Simon when I was a kid. 
And the, the, the song sings about this man, and, and he, he's wrecking his life. He's wrecking his life. But he doesn't understand why. And he keeps looking and blaming other people, and they're leaving him and departing him and angry with him. But he doesn't see how his actions were driving these loved ones away. It's everybody else's fault, not his. And that's what, that's what God is saying to these people right here. You're driving me to push you into judgment, yet you don't see that it's your own actions that are causing this distance between you and me. Okay? God says, but, listen, listen, let's go to chapter 43. But now, right now, now that I've said I'm going to send you off into deportation, now that, I'm, now that I've said that you're in deep water, you're in deep trouble, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, because I've redeemed you. You're precious to me. You're precious in my sight. I've formed you. I called you by name. I know you by name. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When, uh, through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God says, listen, when you go through this judgment, I'm going to be with you. It's, it's not going to be too much for you. It will be restrained and kind. I must, I must uphold my word. But in doing so, you will not be overwhelmed. You will not be overcome. Now, here's my question. Here's my question. How literally did God expect his people to take these promises? How literally? You read this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. How, how literally did God expect his people to take those promises? I mean, you could, you could say, oh, well, I don't have to see any water coming up to my neck. I don't see any rivers above me. Well, okay. Again, if you like to write in your Bible, you need to write down this cross-reference. You need to write down Daniel chapter 3, verses 23 through 27. There were three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the man who judged these people, had brought them into captivity, led them away, and he made a huge idol and said, everybody who doesn't bow down to it will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And these men did not bow down. They wouldn't do it. The king called them in front of them and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, listen. I said, bow, all you got to do is bow your knee to this idol of mine, or I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And he said, king, whether you throw us in the furnace is your business. We ain't bowing down. Whether God delivers us or not is his business, but you need to know there's a God in heaven and he's not you. And we're not bound down to anybody but him. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm a man of my word. Heated up the furnace and threw them into the fire. And in Daniel chapter 3, verses 23 through 27, it says they were walking around in it. And Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth person in there who was like the angel of God. Now let's go back to Isaiah 43. 
When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not overcome you. Why? Go look up at the previous verse. I will be with you. So I ask again, how literally were God's people to take these words? How about to the letter? (laughs) To the letter. It's amazing, isn't it? You think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thinking about these verses as they were walking around in that furnace and God was in there with them? It says when they came out, their, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Were they under God's punishing hand? Yeah, they wouldn't have been in Babylon otherwise. Was God with them? Was he prospering them? Yes. Were they committing idolatry? No, it was their refusal to commit idolatry that ended them up in that furnace where they saw the deliverance of God. Now listen. God has redeemed you. If you've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, God has redeemed you. He's bought you. He knows your name. In fact, you're precious to him. You are precious to him. And he might, he just might for a season, have a fiery trial come into your life. It's possible. But in so doing, he is with you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. He will be right there with you. And the fires of that trial will reach only so far as he decides and not one millimeter closer. He has control of you and your circumstances the entire time. And you can claim every word of God to the letter to get you through that time. Fair enough? All right, let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to apply your word to our lives, especially to our trials. Make us people who are rooting out the idols of our hearts and coming evermore into closer fellowship and reliance on you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.